The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. Today we come to some thoughts from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and our continued study of 1 Timothy together that we've entitled, Paul, Our Pattern. Paul, Our Pattern. Now, just in review, we're reading a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the ministry, Timothy, also referred to in Scripture as Timotheus. Paul writes this as a pastoral epistle. He instructs Timothy on matters relating to the pastorate, what pastors ought to teach. He reminds Timothy of God's grace. He reminds Timothy of all that God has done for him personally. And he gives Timothy instruction on what Timothy as a pastor ought to be teaching those who are under his pastoral care. Interestingly enough, as a a side point and a tangent, you don't see Paul exhorting Timothy on church finances, church administration, the planning of parties and proms, any such activity to entertain the sheep, but you see Paul exhorting Timothy to the real work of a pastor, the preaching of the gospel, the exhortation against sin. You find all sorts of instruction that actually is relative to flocks and to pastoring in Paul's first and second epistle to Timothy. In our message today, we look at Paul as the pattern of those who believe. And I hope that we can get through all of the material today. If we can't, then we'll just consider it over two weeks and our series can grow a little longer. I'm sure that you won't mind that. I'm sure that I won't mind that either. But today our thoughts center around what we can refer to as the backstory of the Apostle Paul. Now, as we consider Paul today and his life story, as we first read of him in Scripture, he isn't referred to as the Apostle Paul. In fact, he isn't even referred to as Paul, but he's referred to as a young man named Saul. Saul and Paul are synonyms for the same man. Sometimes people read the changing of Paul's name from in the narrative of Scripture from Saul to Paul, and they interpret that as the giving of a surname, you know, Simon was also called Peter. And there were several other people who had names and then surnames. More than likely, though, Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul would be his Gentile name. You know that some of these names had a Hebrew pronunciation and a Gentile pronunciation. Saul of Tarsus was a man who was quite unlike the Apostle Paul, as we'll see today. And I don't believe that we need to introduce the backstory of Paul to you in a way that is as if you've never heard it. I think most of us in here would be familiar with the backstory of the Apostle Paul. But we want to look today at who Paul was before Christ and compare that to who Paul was after Christ. You might consider this as the B.C. and the A.D. of the Apostle Paul. We all have a B.C., and what is what is BC? BC is before Christ. In our modern time, scholars have changed that as before the Common Era, BCE, and they they will not pry that from my cold dead fingers. It will be BC for me until death do us part. 
because history is literally split in time around the birth of Christ, before Christ and after Christ, the year of our Lord, A.D. You might consider this, as we said, the B.C. and A.D. of the Apostle Paul. Now, as we begin looking at the story of Paul and what he says leading up to his own story and the recounting of his story to Timothy, we'll point out that many people assume that preachers, in specific, are a special class of humanity. And when they consider the life of a preacher, they assume that ministers are born to do this. And so from childhood on, preachers live some sort of a sanctified, sin-free, upright, unblemished life, and preachers don't have the sinful past that everyone else in the church has, but they are a special class, untarnished with no past and no sin issues, born for this specific work. But I want you to understand, as Paul points out today, that preachers, even Paul himself, are sinners like everyone else in the church people with a past, people with failures, people with sin issues and struggles with sin, just like everyone else in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no different than you. And I I want you to understand that today as we consider the life of the Apostle Paul and the life of any other gospel preacher. There was a time in Peter's life before Christ. There was a time in Andrew's life before Christ. There was a time in John's life before Christ. There was a time in James' life before Christ. Most of these great men of God in the gospel era had periods of their life before Christ. And when you look at Paul, his life before Christ was more sinful and more despicable, more injurious, as we read today, than most other gospel preachers in the history of the church. If you really think about it, some of the men that God has used the most mightily were men who had the most despicable backstories. What would be considered the theme song, the fight song of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? What one song encapsulates what we trust and believe more than any other song? It'd be Amazing Grace. Have you ever read the backstory of Newton who penned that hymn? Have you ever read of of his life? He was a slave trader engaging in what we would define today as human trafficking, men stealers, stealing men and hauling them around the world against their will. And yet when God convicted him, what was it that epitomizes his life from that moment on? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Paul shares with us the story of his wretchedness how God saved a wretch like him, how he once was lost but now is found. He was blind, but now he sees in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we consider today. Now, as we begin looking at Paul's story, it's important to emphasize that the church is a place for ransom sinners and that being so, the sharing of our own backstories the things that we might be inclined to hide from those in the church, the things that we are ashamed of that we don't want others to know in the church are actually helpful tools for evangelism and comfort 
and strength among the saints of God. You'll find that Paul shares this story not only here to his son in the ministry, Timothy, but Paul would share this story on two other occasions that are recorded in the book of Acts. And if you can find Paul sharing this story before King Agrippa and before other men, you can be sure that the Apostle Paul shared this on a number of occasions in front of a variety of audiences. What could be more powerful when you speak of sovereign grace, which Paul believes sovereign grace? Think about it. The, the most powerful language short of the very words of Christ himself in John 6 and John 1 and John 3 and John 17 and John 8 and John 10, short of the very words of Christ himself expressing sovereign grace are the words of the Apostle Paul. Places like Ephesians 1, places like Romans 8, Romans 9. Who do we turn to when we want to learn of God's sovereignty and our salvation, how we are lost sinners and Christ has initiated this and performed this upon us when we were even his enemies? We turn to the writings of Paul. And so when Paul then wants to share this message of grace with others, what does he do? Well, not only does he use the word of God, but he turns to his own experience, and he uses that as a way to convey the reality of what he's expressing theologically. Now, there's a lesson in that. If theology is purely theory, then it doesn't do anyone any good. And we should always understand as preachers that preaching is not merely a lecture. It isn't merely the presentation of fact in a similar way that a history class or a a literature class would be, but this is the preaching of God's Word. It heralds God's Word. It teaches. And if a man, as we'll read, even in this very same epistle, if a man is not apt to teach, if he's not able to teach, if he has no aptitude at teaching, he's not qualified to be an elder. He isn't qualified to be a preacher of the gospel. But preaching is so much more than merely presenting hypothetical theory Paul sharing his experience shows us how the theology that we believe is also experiential in our own lives. You've experienced salvation by grace. And so when you hear salvation by grace taught, it isn't just theory to you. Think about it. Let me give you an absurd example. Think back to college algebra. You might remember some of the equations, but I guarantee you, I don't know, I'm in Huntsville. Maybe some of you have put this into practice. But the rest of us haven't put any of that into practice. And so it's purely theory. It's hypothetical. It's theoretical. It's something that you know the equation for, but you have absolutely no idea how to use in your life. However, when you share sovereign grace, every one of us has a road to Damascus experience. Every one of us has a Saul of Tarsus experience if we be called of God, even if it's so young back into our, into our childhood that we can only express the conviction of sin that we felt our entire lives, we all have experienced God's grace. And it's amazing the different theologies in the world, when you begin talking to people about their story, not what they believe, not what their church teaches, how many times does it go back to, I was a sinner and God did something to me? I felt conviction. I felt the presence of God. I felt the Holy Spirit within me. I felt compelled to Christ. What is that? That's the practical outworkings 
of all these doctrines, all this theology that we talk about when we talk about salvation by grace. Every born-again child of God deep in their soul knows that it was God that initiated the work on them because it's what they experienced. It's the truth. If we believe theology that didn't bear itself out in our own experience, what good would that be? It would be like the algebra that all of us learned and none of us use. But we know that what we learn theologically, it bears itself out in our own personal lives. Rather than hiding his past, which would be impossible, because everyone knew who this man was, as we'll look at, rather than hiding his past, he uses his own sinful history to share God's grace in his life. Now, why is that important? You see, the church is a hospital for sinners. It isn't a museum of holy relics. This isn't a place where we say, we're really holy, and you should want to come be like us. I visited a church one time, and I'll make this very generic because we live stream I visited a church one time, and the air of that place was, aren't you glad that you're here with us? You should really, really feel thankful to be with us. Because you're here, you're more blessed than if you were not. Because we are where it's at. This isn't a place where we say, we're holy. You should want to be like us. This is a place where we say, look... Look at the grace that God has given us. Look at the mercy that we've received because we're rotten, wretched sinners in and of ourselves. And this is a place where we come to tell Christ, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for what you've done for me. Where we sing songs about grace and mercy and peace and healing and strength. And we hear messages from the Word of God that speak to our condition and encourage us to live and equip us to live in a better way. Paul, using his backstory, is literally doing that. And you find him recounting this on multiple occasions in his ministry as recorded in Acts. Let's begin looking at the Scriptures themselves. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Now we're going to move through these rather quickly, and I've written on my, I've written on my, on my notes, move quickly. Because I don't move quickly with arrows and to make it obvious to, to remind me because we want to get to Paul's story. So we'll hit some of this more briefly than we would like to. But to enable means to empower or to strengthen. How does a man preach the word of God? He is empowered by Christ. He is strengthened by Christ. Men do not preach through their own ability. They don't preach through their own intellect or their own studies. Now, do those things benefit a man in preaching? Absolutely they do. Think about the men who dipped into the water when Jesus turned water unto wine. Had they not dipped the water out, there would be nothing to turn to wine, much like our preaching. If I don't study 
There's nothing that God can turn into a blessing for you. I have to fill my pitcher with water for Jesus to turn it to wine. Another analogy is this, that we in our studies produce the skeleton, but it is God who animates it. He puts meat on the bones. He gives it life, and he makes it real to you. Paul was a preacher because of the enabling of Christ. But notice that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, this is an unusual statement. This is such an unusual statement. We should be very clear that this isn't meant to convey that Paul's faithfulness is why God put him into the ministry, because Paul was not faithful. In fact, before God came into Paul's life, Paul was an unbeliever. He had no faith. He was not a person who believed. He was not a faithful man. This isn't to say that God called Paul because of some faithful behavior or disposition in Paul. But what this means is that in calling him to preach, God affirmed him, okay? He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He affirms Paul from the moment that he called Paul that you will go and preach my word, and I affirm you. I count you as one who is worthy of preaching the gospel. Now, was he worthy in and of himself? No. How was he worthy? Through Christ. But he has this affirmation of God from the moment that God called him to preach. I think it will be very clear when we look at Paul's life that Paul was certainly not a faithful man in and of himself, but God counted him as that. He affirms him. He sends him to preach. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief? Now, first of all, and I want to point this out very clearly, prior to the Damascus Road experience that we'll read momentarily, Prior to Paul's story with Christ, to reference it before we, we read it, if you're unfamiliar with that, and we'll look at this in a moment, from Acts chapter 9, Paul is going to Jerusalem. He, he's on the road to Damascus, rather, leaving from religious authorities with papers that grant him the authority to round up and execute Christians. That if he found any of this way, he might round them up and execute them. And suddenly a a light shines round about him, and Jesus strikes him to the ground. Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. When that happened to Saul, please understand, Saul was not yet a born-again man. Somehow the idea got floated in recent years that Saul was a born-again man but not yet converted, and, and my reply to that is lunacy, absurdity. Paul was what? In unbelief. The word unbelief is apostia. 
in the original language. Pistis is the word for faith. Ah is a prefix that conveys the expression no. An atheist, no theo, God, theos, God, no God. Atheistic means no God. Asymmetrical means not symmetrical. Amusement, the word muse means to think. Amuse, no think. How much thinking do you do at an amusement park? Not a whole lot. When you're amused watching television at the end of the day, how much thinking do you do? Not a lot. Amusement, no think. Apostia, no faith. What is given to every child of God in the new birth? Faith. Paul had no faith prior to the Damascus Road experience. He was not born again. It was not that he was born again, but unconverted. Please understand, Jesus says that people will round you up and kill you and think they do God a service, and they do that because they do not know me. Paul did what Paul did. Saul of Tarsus did what Saul of Tarsus did because he was not yet born again. He did not know God. He did not know God. Ask me what I really think. He was unregenerate. That's why this is such a powerful lesson. Because he went from being one extreme to the other, and the only power in his life was personally Christ there with him. Christ made all the difference. And so first of all, Paul was in what? Unbelief. All born-again people are given faith at the new birth. He had not faith. He was an unregenerate who knew not God nor Christ. He goes on to say that he was a blasphemer, one who speaks evil. The word blasphemer is one who speaks evil of another. You have blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He blasphemed Christ. He spoke evil of Christ. You say, a person who speaks evil of Christ, no one like that could be in glory, could they? You know, the two thieves on the cross, one of them spoke evil of Christ moments before. He said, why do you, to the other thief, condemn him? We're justly condemned. He's innocent. Lord, remember me. What happened in his life? The grace of God. God's grace reached him even at his moment of death, which tells us that we have such a finite, inferior perspective of the hearts of men. That man lived his entire life in thievery and was regenerated as he hung there being executed. And what did Jesus tell him? Oh, no, 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 you've lived a wicked life. No, what did Jesus tell him? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We simply don't know. We have to remember that we're all fallen sinners. And the thing that made the difference in Paul's life and the thief on the cross in his life has made the difference in my life and will make the difference in the lives of every elect heir of promise that is in Christ Jesus, every covenant son. He was a blasphemer. He spoke evil of Christ. And a persecutor. To persecute is to harass or pursue another because of some identifying mark in them. 
There are people who have been persecuted because of their ethnicity. There are people who have been persecuted because of their political beliefs. Paul persecutes because of faith in Christ. He is a persecutor of Christians. He's also injurious. The root of that word is injury, by the way. But it has reference to one who insults, one who speaks evil of people. He he was injurious in what he said. He caused harm. So what made the difference in the life of Paul? Now, by the way, you notice that he did it ignorantly. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This isn't to say that if a person doesn't know any better, there's no consequence for his action. How are we to understand this? I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and therefore I obtained mercy. When God sends people to hell at the end of time, no one is going to be able to say, well, I just didn't know any better than to violate your law every single day of my life and to be cast into your prison for eternity because of what I've done. I didn't know any better does not work in that day. So how are we supposed to interpret this? What Paul had done would disqualify men from the ministry. It's disqualifying. Men that are called to preach must not be what? Railers, strikers, abusers. Therefore, Paul should not have been qualified to preach, right? We said, I did it ignorantly and unbelief, and therefore I obtained mercy. God enabled me to preach because when I did these things, it wasn't that I was a man who was in the church secretly doing these things who wanted to preach. I was yet unregenerate, which tells us some things about how God perceives our service in the church based upon things that we did before we knew him. Paul says, I was an unregenerate. I didn't know Christ. And therefore, God blessed me with mercy and enabled me even to preach the word of God. As we begin to consider the difference in Paul's life, and and we're moving quickly to get to his life, Paul says, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ. What made the difference in Paul's life? Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, leaving with papers to round up and execute Christians. What made the difference in his life? It was grace. It was unmerited favor. You say, but he had to do something to initiate that grace. When we read the story of Paul in just a moment, he did nothing to initiate it. He did nothing to bring it to pass. He did nothing to cause it to be. In fact, he did everything in opposition to this Christ, everything in opposition to God, everything in opposition to the gospel. And so the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Unmerited favor made the difference. Grace imparted to a soul, notice this, brings faith and love to that individual. At the moment of the new birth, we know God through Christ. The new birth is literally to know Him. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know me, know God, know the Lord. Hebrews 8, for all shall know me 
from the least to the greatest. How do we know him? Because he teaches us to know him. John 6, and all thy children shall be taught of God. If you don't understand sovereign grace, that language is nonsense. Well, what children will automatically know him through the teaching of God himself? Without God's sovereignty and salvation, the rest of those statements have no foundation, no basis, no bearing. We read in John 6, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. As it is written in the prophets, they shall be all taught of God. And in Isaiah, from where he quotes, it is all thy children shall be taught of God. There's a teaching that God himself does to every child of God. He teaches them to know him. This is intimate. This is personal. It's where Christ comes directly to the soul of his child and says, live And they come to life in Christ. It is a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual birth, a spiritual creation. As it is compared to all of those physical realities in Scripture. It's called a birth in John 3. It's called a creation in 2 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 2. It's called a resurrection in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 and John 5. Our dead souls, dead in trespasses and in sins, live as new creations in Christ Jesus. When grace is imparted to an individual, faith and love are given to that person. And so they know him. John 17, this is life eternal that thou might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. What happens at the new birth? They know him intimately, vitally, personally. This is why John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb. It's why Cornelius was a man who feared God with all his house, whose prayers had gone up to God in glory even before Peter came to preach to him. You see, God regenerated Cornelius, gave Cornelius a vision to send for the preacher. You think the preacher is why Cornelius was born again? Think again. God regenerates Cornelius. Cornelius is serving God in Acts chapter 10. A man who feared God. The natural man has no fear of God before his eyes. God gives Cornelius a vision, send for Peter. Cornelius sends for Peter. God gives Peter a vision in which he says, what I have cleansed, don't you dare call common. God sends Peter by way of those messengers back to Cornelius. Peter preaches to Cornelius. Peter baptizes Cornelius. That's how it works. God reaches the heart of his children, and then God sends us, the preachers, to preach to his children. A lot of people like to take credit for the work of Christ. I'm going to tell you that salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. Everybody loves that song, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And yet when their theology is explained, and this isn't to kick people around, but when the theology of the day is explained, it's, Well, but the preacher did this and the preacher did that. Let me tell you, God is a jealous God. And this work of salvation is performed exclusively by Him. This grace that Paul received was rich in faith and love. From the moment of the new birth, a child of God is given faith. They know God on the heart. They know Him. They yearn for Him. They hunger and thirst for Him. There's another character trait that's given, and that's the trait of love. 
In fact, John in 1 John 4 says, if a man doesn't possess love, he's not born of God. Because God is love, everyone that is born of God loveth. Love is one of those traits that God gives His children. He is the source of it. Think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Of those fruit of the Spirit, two of those are what? Faith and love. If a person has faith and love, it is because they are born again. At the new birth, God sparks in His children both faith and love. They're byproducts of salvation. There's an old theological statement, regeneration precedes faith. We still believe that. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration allows faith. And you could also say that regeneration precedes love, a love for Christ, a love for God, a love for the Word, and a love for the brethren. John exhorts us to love our brothers the same way that we love Christ, because if we love Christ, we should love one another. Blessed be the tie that binds our Christian hearts in love. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, Paul says. What saying is this? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, I would love to spend an hour speaking of Christ Jesus coming into the world. You know my favorite verse is 2 Corinthians 5.21. You know that, well established. My favorite subject to speak on is Christology. What is Christology? The person and the nature of Christ, that he is divine, that he is also human, that he's completely God and completely man, that he was all things and is all things God from eternity as the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, but then he is also body, soul, and spirit, a human being. He took upon himself the form of sinful flesh. I love to preach on the incarnation of the second person of God, but I don't have time. So Christ came into the world for what purpose? To save sinners. And might I add that when Jesus was upon the cross and cried out with a loud voice, it is finished, the sinners were saved. Salvation was accomplished on the cross. Now, we all yet are in our sins as far as our vital state. And so salvation has to come to us personally, which is the new birth. But legally, your sins were separated from you as far as the east is from the west upon the cross of Calvary. Salvation eternal has phases. It began before the world in the covenant of grace. Christ legally saved us on the cross. Vitally, we're individually and personally saved in the new birth. And we trust there's coming a day when we shall even be delivered in the resurrection as we're raised again with glorified bodies. Salvation is broken into phases. You have the covenant phase, the legal phase, the vital phase, and the final phase. Christ came into the world to save sinners through offering himself to the Father. He was not offered to you. He was offered to the Father upon the cross of Calvary. He was our high priest, he was the lamb that was offered, and he gave himself for us. He shall save his people from their sins, as the angel told Joseph in Matthew one twenty one. And as we know, it is finished. 
But this is a faithful saying. <clears throat> this means that it's trustworthy. You can believe it. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's reliable. Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. But Paul goes on to say that it's worthy of all acceptation, meaning that this statement that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, is indisputable. It ought to be universally accepted among men that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul is chief. Now let's consider that statement for a moment. The chief of sinners. Men love to feign humility. And they put on the, the mule face, you know. I'm just, so, I'm just so low, I'm just so humble. We watched the movie last night, Christopher Robin, and, and I loved how Eeyore stole the show. I never thought he got enough attention in the cartoon. You know, I'm a, I'm a cartoon Winnie the Pooh guy. So anyway, it's thanks for noticing me. I guess it's what I deserve. I'm on the ground again. Someone stole my tail. You know Eeyore. Men love to play the Eeyore. We love to feign humility. We like to be perceived as humble. And might I only suggest that if we're acting in such a way to be perceived as humble, that in and of itself goes against true humility. Think of the rules that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. When you fast, do not as the hypocrites that disfigure their faces and go around grumbling because I'm so hungry, I'm fasting. Did you know I'm fasting? Did you know I'm fasting? But we, when we fast, are to hide it from the public in general because it's private between us and the Lord. We shouldn't wear our religion as a badge of honor. When Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners, he was not feigning humility. He was not making a statement of hyperbole. He wasn't saying, well, I'm just the worst of them all when he really didn't mean it. Paul really felt himself to be the chief of sinners. That was real to him. And beyond being real to him the way that he felt, when we read in just a moment the life of Paul, you'll see that beyond anyone else in the first century, especially among the preachers, no one had done what Paul had done. No one had done the cruel, despicable, wicked things that Saul of Tarsus had done to the church. He really was the worst of the worst. He said, of, of sin, I was the greatest sinner that Christ has ever saved. If Christ, in his sovereign pleasure, purposed to save an Osama bin Laden, what would our response be? It ought to be, praise God. But think about what that would do in the minds of men, when you have one of the worst opponents of Christ who through God's work on his heart suddenly becomes the greatest proponent of Christ who even suffered multiple beatings and incarcerations, stonings, 
whippings, scourgings, and eventually martyrdom. That's exactly what took place with the Apostle Paul, with Saul of Tarsus. He really was that bad. He executed people. He tortured people for their faith. He said he compelled them to blaspheme. How did he compel them? Well, implied there is torture. He really was that wicked. Why is that important? Why are we hammering this? We'll see momentarily. Because of his past, he considered himself to be the worst man of life without Christ. Now, to the meat of our text today, how be it for this cause, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. The longsuffering of our Lord, as Peter said in 2 Peter 3, is salvation. We have salvation because God was longsuffering with us. The very semantics of that verse exclude salvation by works. We don't have salvation through our own personal righteousness, through our merit, but Jesus shows us long-suffering, and His long-suffering is salvation. For this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. Now read this carefully. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. We want to look at the last of that verse before we consider the meat of the text. Believe to life everlasting. Does that mean that Paul somehow mustered the belief and because of that he has life everlasting? Christ authored and finished faith in Saul. He believed according to the working of God's mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead. Those are the words of Paul himself in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. We believe then because God has spiritually resurrected our souls from death and sin to life in Christ. But as a part of that, as we already discussed, and as Paul has already said, when grace comes to a man, one of the results of that in the heart of the man is a knowledge of God, otherwise known as faith. And so Paul has faith authored and finished in him by Christ, he has eternal life given through the grace of God, and this life eternal is to know God, but I believe the sense of this text has reference to duration. We believe on Him to life everlasting. If I'm driving to Huntsville, I have a goal, a destination, and whatever I'm doing is in the interim. Right now, we are walking by faith, not by sight, as we ultimately travel to where? Where are we headed? Glory with Christ. And so implied here is also the duration. This is a statement of duration. We believe on Him from now to eternity by the faith that He has wrought within us. But I want to look at this one word, pattern. The word pattern means example, something that is typical of something else. Now, we spoke about this in Louisville, Texas, and I used the example there of a woman who sews. Back a long time ago in the 1900s when I was a little kid, that seems like a long time ago to kids today. You were alive in the 1900s? The 1900s. That doesn't seem like about two years ago. Y2K, baby. 
But uh, half of you don't even know what that means. But it's going on two decades, which... The sad part is I was alive two decades in the 1900s. Some of you were like, well, I was born two decades into the 1900s anyway. So when I was a little boy, my grandmother would take me every Sunday to Walmart. It was a little bitty Walmart in Leeds, and that was was going out. When you live in a small town and you have a Walmart, that's going out. So we would go on Sundays to the fabric department, and you had all these white envelopes, and on the cover of each envelope was a picture of a garment. You know what I'm talking about? So I, as little Ben, little four-year-old, five-year-old Ben, would think in my mind that in that envelope was whatever garment (laughs) was that was on the envelope. So I would look at Superman costumes and... And ninja costumes and superhero costumes, whatever type, Batman, Spider-Man. And I would think, I can get that envelope, and in that envelope is the costume. And I would be so disappointed every time they said, no, it's not in there. I did get a Superman cape eventually, made from a pattern that was there. But all that was contained in the envelope was what? What was the pattern? It was the example. It was the instructions. It was how to build that costume that is contained therein. We know what a pattern is. We know what a pattern is. We know what the blueprint is. We know what a set of plans or a set of schematics is. I did road construction for eight years as a land surveyor. My work truck was full of schematics, plans. And we would get them out and we would roll them across the hood and it would tell us how we're to build the road. And sometimes it got built that way and sometimes we just had to make it work. But we built roads and we did it according to the plans. Those plans were the pattern. Notice what Paul says. I am the pattern of them which should hereafter believe. Paul is the pattern of the believer. Why is that important? When we look at the Apostle Paul's story, we see things in his story that are true to every one of us. Let's go to the book of Acts chapter 7. Now, we've got about nine minutes remaining, so we did good in the 50-minute preface to get here. Everyone clap. Just kidding. Acts chapter 7. In Acts 7, a man had been recently ordained, we believe, to the office of deacon. And he went out and shared the Word of God publicly in Acts 6, throughout chapter 7. And at the end of chapter 7, the Jewish powers that be persecute him, they, it says, stop up their ears with a loud voice, cried out, ran upon him with one accord, and they gnash on him with their teeth. Verse 54, Stephen, being filled with the Holy Ghost, looks up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And if you're a Bible reader, you know that Jesus is usually depicted as being seated on the right hand of God, and yet in this moment, Jesus is standing. And to me, I find that so interesting. It intrigues me. It piques my curiosity because rather than being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, as we read over and over and over in Scripture, he's standing. And 
If you want to know my speculation, it's because as his high priest, one of his children is suffering martyrdom, and Jesus stands for that and shows himself standing for Stephen. Wow, what a concept is that. The God of deism is not the God of the Bible. The separated, uncaring, separate, lofty and far away, uncaring God of deism is not the God of the Bible. Your God, your Savior, your priest can be touched by the feeling of your infirmities. He stands for Stephen's stoning. Stephen says, I I see the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, and they're infuriated at this. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. Here we have the first occurrence of Saul. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. They stoned Stephen. Stephen is calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As he dies, he says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Saul generally persecutes the church. And Saul was consenting unto his death, implied in them casting their garments at his feet is that he was the ringleader. It doesn't explicitly say that, but as they lay down their garments at his feet in chapter 7, that implies that he is the ringleader of the stoning. He's directing them, he's instructing them, he's commanding them. It only gets worse from there in the life of Saul. There was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Now I want you to think something similar to World War II Germany and the Holocaust. So Saul is knocking on doors. He's asking, are there Christians here? I've heard there are Christians here. He's rounding up men and women who are Christians They're escaping, they're fleeing, they're going underground, and the word here is great. There's a great persecution. He's rounding them up. As he would report later in Acts, he compels them to blaspheme. He tortures them. He tortures them. Desiring that they speak evil of Christ. And so they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some speculate that as Peter writes his first epistle to the stranger scattered abroad, that he's writing to those who had been scattered at the persecution of Saul. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Fathom that for a minute. We, we read it and it's so sterile to us. He made havoc of the church. What if someone came in here today and persecuted us unto the death? When we see that happening in our culture, what do we do? We lament, we mourn. When a, when a madman goes into an assembly and begins shooting people, that's what Saul does over and over again. He doesn't have a gun. He uses the power of the government at the time, power of sword, scourging, etc., He makes havoc of the church, entered into every house, knocking on every door. You see, the Christians were told by Christ, don't deny me before men, as you're told by Christ, don't deny him before men. 
When they knock on the door of these Christians, are you a Christian? They had no choice but to say, I'm a Christian, lest they be ashamed of Christ. And upon their testimony, Paul would take them, he would arrest them, he would beat them, he would execute them. Saul of Tarsus committed them to prison, men and women. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. By the way, this is taking place in countries around the world today. It just doesn't happen here, so we, we don't understand that it still occurs. Chapter 9, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the Lord, the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed to Damascus to take them to Jerusalem, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, folks, this is the glorious part, and it's the very end of the message, so keep your mind engaged. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and there suddenly shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Now, you know that when a Jew says, Lord, he, he's calling upon God. Who art thou, Lord, and he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou must do. The men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. He was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. And according to what we read later in this chapter, you can go read it yourself later, he was there praying for three solid days. And God sends a man, Ananias, to him, brother Saul. He lays his hand on him. Scales, as it were, fell from his eyes. He was enabled to see. He arose. He was baptized. And he spent the rest of his life preaching the Christ that he once persecuted. What's the point in mentioning Saul in his life? Because he is our pattern. That means there are things in his experience that are true for every one of us in our experience with Christ. Obviously, some of this doesn't occur with you. You didn't receive letters from Jerusalem, from the high priest, to go to Damascus and bring people back to Jerusalem to execute them, did you? Well, that's not true for us, necessarily. When you were born again, did Christ audibly speak to you from heaven in a voice that you could hear with a blinding light around you? No. How then is Paul our pattern? Let me give you five ways. Number one, before Christ, we are dead in sin and completely depraved, just like Saul. After Christ, by grace, we are alive in Christ Jesus. Saul, before Christ, is dead in sin. Saul, after Christ, is alive spiritually, resurrected by the power of God in his life. 
Number two, before this Damascus Road experience, the gospel of Christ was foolishness to Saul. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that to them that perish, the preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness. A compelling message? No. Utter foolishness. It takes grace in the heart before the gospel can be received, just like it did with Saul. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, just like with Saul. Before Christ, the gospel was foolish to Saul. Before Christ, the gospel is foolish to us. Point number three, Christ alone brought eternal life to Saul. Say amen. amen. No preacher was with Saul. No missionary was with Saul. No evangelist was with Saul. Am I discounting the work of the ministry? Absolutely not. We're on radio stations in states all around the southeast. We're on Facebook Live. We're podcasting and, and blogging and sharing the Word of God face to face. I'd love to be an Ananias, but there's only one who can bring life to the dead, and that's Christ. Christ alone brought life. This is, in a word, immediate. We don't mean instantaneous. We mean immediate, no mediator. No one stands between Christ and His beloved when Christ regenerates them. Christ does this work alone. Christ alone brought life. Number four, and this is important, there is an instant confrontation of sin. When Christ regenerates us, He confronts our sinfulness. We refer to this as conviction. When the Spirit of God comes into your heart, the guilt of your sinfulness is now present in your mind. If you struggle with guilt over sin, beloved, praise God, you are a child of God. If you lament your sinfulness and you yearn for deliverance, that is evidence that Christ has quickened you and the gospel is sweet to your ears. And number five, as a part of this pattern, Paul wasn't saved to go back to his former lifestyle, was he? He was saved by God to serve Christ. And so after God has regenerated, God commands for you to take up your cross, for you to be baptized in His name, and for you to serve Him in His church. We're saved to serve. 1 Timothy 1. 17, the understanding of God's grace in your life ought to lead to doxology. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.